As a direct result of this conversation, Chrissy will spend a significant part of her adult life obsessed with gardening. Hello, gardeners. Welcome to the Point 10 podcast. I'm Derek Gottlieb, and Rachel White is back today to help us look back 30 years after the fact, at a 1995 film that is itself looking back 25 years to a coming-of-age story set largely in 1970, when everyone in the incredibly named cul-de-sac of Gaslight Edition was white and straight, and when divorce and an interest in the occult and being good at sports were the biggest threats to growing into lives as appropriately gendered women. The movie is, obviously, Now and Then, starring young Thora Birch, Christina Ricci, and Gabby Hoffman, whose older selves are played by Melanie Griffith, Rosie O'Donnell, and Demi Moore. Let us dig in! Here we are on, I believe you called it Hard on Hump Day? <laughs> <laughs> this is This is right. <laughs> I'm trying to compete with my my prior Noonie Magazine Day statement. It's just never going to be that good to talk about Now and Then, a 1995 movie that I somehow had not seen before. I mean, I don't know that I was the target audience for this movie exactly, but like... I think you should have been, though. I should have been. Like, I was 16 in 1995. It, like, it speaks to... A universal sense of growing up. Sort yeah, of. I think all all teenage boys should have watched this movie. Yeah. Well, let's dig into that for a second. So, like, <laughs> do you remember the first time that you saw this movie? Or, like, what's your relationship like to this movie in general? Yeah. Um, you know, I was... When this movie came out, I feel like it was, like, made for me, right? I was... I was eight when this movie came out. Um, and so it was, like... The, the characters were a few years older than me, so it was like this, like, all right, here's, like, what's coming down the pipeline. Um, and so I think the first time I watched it was probably, um, probably like, at a sleepover at a friend's house or something like that. And we rented it from the, the local movie store where you went and got the little, like, tag off of the oh, thing. Yeah. And you turned it in, and then they gave you the, the VHS movie. And so we came back and made popcorn probably and watched Now and Then. And I would say, like, um, I can remember watching it at that age and being like, oh, I don't know if I should be watching this. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I grew up in conservative rural America. So, like, the stuff that they were talking about was stuff that, like, I 
had never talked about yet at that age, really. Sure. Like um, gardens. Yeah. Gardens and hoses <laughs> and, um, and, and boobs and all the things. Um, and so there was like an uncomfortability around some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it became, it quickly became a movie that was like a staple, you know, that between the ages probably of eight and 13, um, I, I watched a lot. Um, sure. It just, I, I think, um, it, I think it probably came out around the same time as Harriet the Spy, and I was really into Harriet the Spy because I don't know. I just thought that Harriet was like a badass woman, girl. She was a girl, mm-hmm. um, and I think like all four of these girls, in their own way, were kind of like these badass girls um, that lived these lives that I thought would be really cool to live. Um, huh. And I was thinking about this when I walk into the office today, like, which one of these, when I was a kid, like, which one of these girls would I want to be? And or which one of them did I identify, like, in that moment with the most? And I was like, I don't, there's, I think there's, like, at different stages in life, I was all of these different wow. girls. Um, so, I don't know. I think it. there's just, the characters were relatable to, they had to have been relatable to so many Girls, particularly in, you know, this is set in, in rural Indiana, right? And I was in rural Michigan. And so I think it just particularly hit home for me. Nice. What was your experience of rewatching it like then? How long had it been since <laughs> uh, you saw it? Oh, I mean, since, I, I don't know that I've watched it since I was a teenager. Um, really, like, sat and watched it. Um, the rewatch was good. Um, just so many memories of, like, the funny scenes. Um, and, you know, being in my 30s now, there was a lot of stuff that I was, like, not surprised by, but just, like, oh, this has a really deep meaning. And I was thinking about the ways that, like, movies sort of can, like, subliminally, like, and put these different values into your life. Sure. Um, and, of course, as you're watching it as a kid, you don't think about those things. But as an adult, I was like, oh, I wonder – if this shaped like how I saw myself as a girl in rural America, that was sort of, sort of a tomboy, um, like Christina Ricci's character, Mm -hmm. but also completely sheltered. Like the, um, um, God, what is her name? Chrissy? The chubby girl's name. (laughs) Um, but like sheltered and my mom, like didn't want to talk about like sex with me. So I just like, the ways that this movie sort of shaped how I am um, subliminally. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, okay. So, like, I have some questions about... So, this was my first time watching this movie ever. And the only, like... I, I, my very first impressions of sort of the opening shot was basically, like, there was something going on in the mid-1990s that involves, like, a league of their own and Forrest Gump in which we're going to take a very nostalgic look at some earlier phase of sort of American social formation, whether this is like a league of their own, like a a particularly sort of like, you know, look how far women have come and how different things are now, whatever it's, it's, it's the opening scene is like soft focus over all these photographs. And there's like the tinkly high piano music, just like the Forrest Gump theme song, you know, like there was really something going on. I mean, 
I have theories about we, we talk sometimes on this podcast about like the concept of an end of history movie. And like this is was sort of going on in the 1990s. And like this is one at this whole thing, this whole aesthetic is part of that sort of like, you know, things were bad. Girls didn't know about sex and like boys tried to keep them out of sports. But now in the 90s, like we can like look back and be like, look at how parochial everything was. Thank God everything is now fixed. You know, it's like it's it's odd. It's an odd sort of like like nostalgia for this time and also sort of like a uh, a sort of self-congratulatory take on where we are at now. So like that that was my initial initial thought. The actual like the actual stories, like the narratives of these uh of these four girls is really interesting. Like Teeny actually becomes a movie star. Like yeah. the, the way in which like they it was so the the connection between who they were as 12 year olds and who they eventually become as adults is so strong. That was really, really uh, intense and also the fact that they're 12 i mean this is also a, just a different version of the of stand by me the adaptation of the stephen king uh short story whose opening line is like you never had friends like you did when you were 12 but that's like you know if you know if the protagonists of this movie were basically the warmers like yeah <laughs> such a good name the warmers i know right <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, thinking about like them as adults, right, especially teen- Teeny and Sam and their sort of, um, I don't more bleak outlook on life in general, <laughs> um, I think is, is really interesting given like what you were just saying and how this is like, oh, look how far we have come and, you know, things we should be grateful that we're in. But like, I think there's that sort of juxtaposition, particularly with Sam, but Teeny is also like right there with her being like, things still suck. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there's still a lot of stuff that's really hard and a lot of things that women experience that, um, <clears throat> I don't know that, that other, that men don't have to. Um, and then, you know, and then Roberta being a doctor, but, Roberta just being that sweet, kind person that is always going to make people uh, smile and think, and then and then Chrissy turned out to be Chrissy, which is which is kind of amazing too. It is kind of amazing. So, like, I like Roberta and Chrissy to me were the most interesting characters in this, despite the fact that it is narrated by Demi Moore, and like her, neither her childhood character nor her adult character struck me as particularly interesting, which is. Kind of, I think, you know, we're supposed to have our attention focused on that. But like, I, I mean, first of all, the idea that Christina Ricci grows up into uh, why the fuck am I blanking on her? Demi name? Moore. <laughs> no, uh, uh, Rosie O'Donnell is hilarious in. Oh, yeah. Retrospect. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just sort of like that is not that's not how change. I like. <laughs> now that we are 30 years removed from the production of this movie, which was set. 25 years after the events of the their sort of childhood i'm like thora birch as melanie griffith really <laughs> it's just it's very yeah it's very funny yeah. how they did that like <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's so okay that's just a, a neither here nor there sort of comment but roberta and chrissy fascinating sort of characters i'm i mean i was curious watching this 
knowing you as an athlete, I'm like, what did you make of the of the the one scene in which Roberta is like, like fights the boy who whatever doesn't uh, who just says the totally nonsensical thing about like girls can't play softball. He's girls can't play softball. First of all, <laughs> that whole scene is ridiculous. But but also like the the way that that's supposed to stand in for some sort of like anti tomboy whatever what did you make of roberta's character as a child somebody who's uncomfortable with developing into a woman maybe or whatever that was just that was fascinating yeah i think i i think i resonated as a kid i probably resonated the most with roberta um in that i was i was a huge tomboy and there were a lot of points in my life where people told me i shouldn't be be doing things that i was doing right like for at recess, like I was playing flag football with the boys. Like I was, that's what I did. Or I was, you know, playing basketball with the boys, even, even in through high school, um, you know, always just sort of being with the boys. I, even through college, like literally the way I came to running, like the sport of running is, you know, through, I joined the like club team and the girls were, I was like, these girls are like slow, like what, what is happening? And that here I am in my like basketball shorts down to my knees and cut off t-shirt. And I'm like, I'm just gonna run with these boys. <laughs> like This is fine. And this is Rachel at like, you know, 20 years old. Um, so I'm running with the boys whose shorts are shorter than me and who are <laughs> running fast. And they're all just like, who, like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> like, why are you here? Why are you keeping up with us? Like, what sort of past life did you have that like would make you, yeah, be able to like hang with the boys? <laughs> I'm just, I don't know. So I feel like, I connected with Roberta so much for a long part of my my life um, because it would piss me off. And I think I would – it would make – you know, I, I never did punch a guy. Um, I feel like I kind of wish that I did now. Like I wish I had that story. Um, but there were many times that I wanted to punch boys. <laughs> and um, there are many times where – I would get really frustrated because people just um, told me that I couldn't do what I was doing. And and not that I, like, couldn't do it. It, it was more that I shouldn't be doing it. Oh, interesting. Because clearly I could do it because <laughs> I was. And that's wrong. Um, yeah. And it was more about I shouldn't be doing it. Um, you know, even teachers being like, Rachel, why don't you go play with these people at recess today? Like just these these social norms that were so, so wildly inappropriate, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. So I, I don't know. Um, that, that scene uh, when I was watching, I was like, I can remember watching this as a kid. And there was part of me as a kid that was like, I wish this would happen. Like I want uh, yeah. this to be me. Um, I fucking so. dare you to say something. Yeah. Yeah. And folks did. I just, I was, I also was like, so small, (laughs) like that Roberta wasn't big. Like she, but I feel like she was more of a badass than I was as a, as a little girl. Like I was literally like skin and bones, like just (laughs) would not have been able to beat a man up. I can just tell you that (laughs) maybe with my words, but not my body. (laughs) Well, so 
one of the interesting things about Roberta's character in this movie, who you know, she is coded as a tomboy. She is good at sports. She's uncomfortable with developing, etc. But she also has these really close female friendships, which is you never really see her being friends with boys or sort of torn between her group. It is only the fact that she is athletic that uh, that like that does the coding work in this movie, which is interesting. That's all. No, that's super interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because I haven't really thought about that. And I feel like as a tomboy, I was mostly friends with other girls who played a lot of sports um, and who were really athletic. I, I don't know that I had a lot of friends that, you know, were, I don't know, this friend group is just so diverse, right? Like yeah, I didn't yeah. have a lot of like super, you know, girly friends that are putting on makeup and doing right, all these right. things. And then Sam, who's sort of a, an introvert and really interested in sort of like, you know, the, the life after death, like all this stuff. Right. And then, and then Chrissy is just, I, I don't even know like what her persona is, but I'm yeah. sure I had some friends maybe like Chrissy. Um, but most of my friends, friends that were girls were athletes. Um, and so it is weird that she, um, would mostly surround herself with these, these very, very different girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think I, I hung out with boys too, but I think, you know, I don't know. I don't know that it's much different for boys and girls, but there's always just like that awkward, like, oh, you're hanging out with someone who's like has a different genitalia than you, <laughs> <laughs> right? right? And like, there's something awkward about it. But I, I've always been just even as an adult now, like it's easier for me to have conversations with boys. Um, Interesting. So I, you know, given given like her tomboyishness or like Mm -hmm. her interest in sports and all these other things, like, because that's how I am. I always find it easier to talk with men than women oftentimes. And so it's interesting that she has these deep relationships with women and is able to talk, talk with them as opposed to like men, but maybe in a couple of, you know, as a 12 year, maybe it was the age, maybe it's like 12, maybe by the time she's 15 or 16, that all changes. Sure. Yeah. It could also be, I was thinking like a, a product of the sort of nostalgic look back to like a pre title nine kind of a uh, more sort of a more strictly gendered set of uh, behaviors or a differently gendered set of behaviors that would sort of like push women into or girls into sort of common social spaces and really, especially around athletics, delimit who is able to participate and who should just watch or whatever. Uh, Like, I don't know. That's that's an interesting facet, too. One of the questions that I had as I was watching it, and I know that you have questions for me as well, uh, is like, I I am one of the things. So we, we I mentioned earlier how funny it seems that like especially teeny who's like giving a little oscar speech you know in her bedroom or whatever and then goes on to be a famous actress and then shows up in a white limo which is like whatever (laughs) to to her friend's house in her like hometown fine um is how much like i did not get a sense of chrissy's character as a child like we spend so much time with her as a child but i feel like we're supposed to read backwards into who she's into her like child character from who she becomes as an adult. And that was strange. Like I felt like seeing, seeing them together as adults and seeing who Chrissy becomes, I'm like, is this supposed to be as like linearly predictable from who she was as a child? Like, how did you, how did that, that particular character? Yeah. 
read to you. So I think I actually think Roberta's character is harder for me to to make the jump um, from like Roberta to to Rosie O'Donnell as a, who's a doctor. Right, right. That isn't what I would have expected out of Roberta. For Chrissy, I think that one is like this this like juxtaposition, right? In that she knew nothing about sex, like. She she didn't like um, the the boy that pushes his his glasses up right I can't think of his name um, you know like she's always the, who like loved her like clearly like wanted to chat with her when they were playing Red Rover Red Rover like all these things and she didn't want anything to do with them and then it's just like oh of course that's who she married yeah right exactly and and the girl that knew nothing about sex is the first one to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that how it works? Stereotypically in the 90s sort of sex ed kind of way that like it is ignorance that gets you pregnant, really? <laughs> yeah, she was. they were just checking out his garden hose. And then, who knew? Like, <laughs> Is this what watering it means? <laughs> oh, my yes. God. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, yeah. The, the whole like, I mean. All of these, I mean, we only really, we hear Demi Moore's voice throughout doing the narration and really setting the whole stage. And then we spend the most time in Chrissy's house. The treehouse still exists in the backyard. Uh, All the, like, the characters comment on how everything looks exactly the same. She's wearing, like, a house dress as she is, like, pregnant as hell. All that stuff. She's so excited to see that she doesn't keep hard liquor in the house. And I'm like... I'm like, there are two very different sorts of memory-ness going on in in this movie. You've got the writer, Demi Moore, who's retelling, who's narrating the actual story. In like, and she's the one who sort of narrates their like rediscovery of what their childhood means or whatever. Like, she's the one who achieves some kind of like integration of their history with whatever. At the very end of the movie, but Chrissy's version of that has been like to simultaneously to keep everything the same, including her like being the innocent one, uh, despite, as you said, being the first one to actually have kids. But it's important that like, you know, I, I think the implication is that she's only been with one man in her whole life, probably, you know, like the nerdy kid hits on her when, you know, they're 12 and then that's who ends up being. Yeah. You know, the same wire room glasses. Mm-hmm. You can tell it's the same person because he has glasses, right? Like there's right, like one right. person who has glasses. Yeah. I don't know what's, I don't know exactly how to like put those two things together. The Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I only know what I know and I know in, in rural America, like that story is a really common one. Um, that, you know, women find someone in high school, middle school and they just, you know, they, they get married and they have kids and they don't, they don't change. And so I think that's part of it too. It's not even that like I identified with certain characters as kids, but like each of these like different trajectories that I think at one point, like I probably aspired to that trajectory, right. Of Chrissy, um, now I probably am more, more like a Sam. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know her trajectory. I thought 
was the most predictable, unpredictable trajectory <laughs> that you could have in that you wouldn't think that it would be her. But but what would you have thought? Maybe she would have become. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, she became her mom, right? Yes, exactly. Sort of. But like the other big funny thing in this movie, I mean, it's not a funny thing, is the absence of fathers in the movie entirely. I mean, most of, most of, if you look at like nineties action movies, it's always the moms who are absent somehow. Like it's, it's a particularly masculine space in this case, like the absences of fathers are simultaneously like traumatic and a site of worry and concern and feelings of abnormality their replacements are buffoonish <laughs> often. But like one of the interesting things is I don't remember. I don't remember what the story with Chrissy's dad is. Had he. I don't know that. Was I, he I there? assume that they just had like she had a dad. He just obviously wasn't talking to her about garden hoses. <laughs> sure. Sure. And like we, we never really saw Chrissy's parents. It's, you know, she says the thing about like, like mother, like daughter or whatever. The The thing is like, we know that. Was it Roberta's mom who had died? It was, right? Yeah, Roberta's mom died. And the only thing we hear about her dad is that he that she gets very upset because of the nice way he described Roberta's yeah, mom's yeah. death. But we never see him at any point no, in the movie. No, we only the only part in her house is at the beginning. Right. Um, and she's like stepping over her brothers who are having a brawl yeah, exactly. in, the, in the hallway. Exactly. Uh, the only dad, in fact, that we see is Demi Moore's dad. I can't remember her character's name all of a sudden. Sam. Sam, that's right. Uh, is Sam's dad when he is literally leaving, like w- out the window as he's getting in the car to leave her mo- family and vanish. So. But no other no other father figure appears. So like, well, you had you had Sam's mom's boyfriend, Hank Azaria, in yeah. <laughs> a wonderful little cameo. There, it was hard. I was so like when I was watching this, like the toddler is literally jumping on the couch and the dog is barking at something. So that scene, like my attention was distracted, and half the time I wasn't actually I didn't have my eyes on the screen and I could only hear it and. For me, Hank Azaria in the 1990s is like the voice of every Simpsons character. So hearing him deliver <laughs> lines but not looking at his character was very – I'm like, is this Chief Wiggum? Is that what I'm listening to? It was a hilarious little juxtaposition. Chief Wiggum like essentially doing a Fred from Scooby-Doo impression. Oh, my god! It was amazing. Yes. The scarf. Yeah. yeah so that's the, that's the only – yeah, father figure. And he's not a father, right? He's, he's a, not. He's a exactly. boyfriend. Oh, it's so awkward when she – walks in and he's holding her little sister and i'm like oh man this is not mm-hmm. like and then when the mom like he spills the wine and she i'm like of course she picked out the like bowling shirt that had yes. her, her ex's name on it like what also like why wouldn't he have been like mm, no <laughs> yeah exactly i don't uh i mean i imagine like he's trying so hard to save face what like he knows what a shitty position he's in, sort of, and like divorce being much more rare in 1970, and much more sort of symbolic of some kind of personal moral failure than it is now to be like, to be like I yeah, oh god, that whole thing was just almost too painful to watch. I mean, but also hilarious. So it was uh, <laughs> that was very intense. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the absence of of men in the girls lives um i do feel like i mean well in general i think 
There was, you know, it's summer and like there's not a lot of parent, like they're just kind of free. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and I think that's a 70s thing too, right? They're in this oh, like yeah. idyllic little, you know, suburban community or whatever in that the cul-de-sac that they live in. And um, they just, you know, their parents probably just figured they were hanging out together every day and there wasn't a lot of like parent over oversight at all. Um, it's yeah. kind of crazy how quickly that has changed. Like. Mm-hmm. There, so like so much of this movie is possible because as 12 year olds you could spend so much time during the summer outside of adult supervision with a certain kind of understanding that like bad things generally wouldn't happen to you and we need to bookmark that to be like this town might seem safe but it's not and like is the major plot point in like the murder of these children that not these children but earlier children uh and how that sort of functions in the plot but like I mean, even like my childhood was very much like that from the ages of 12 to the time that I graduated, like parents might have known where we were loosely, if but like they only knew where we were because, you know, I told them like now people have like whatever cell phone tracking apps and whatever. So like your parents literally already always know exactly where you are. There's like air tags and whatever. Back then it was like, I'd be like, I'm going to Joe's house and then we could go literally anywhere from there. And my parents would have no idea. The The assumption was that like we would have told Joe's parents where we were going, maybe. And so like somebody knew there was a chain of like evidence to follow. But like we just we just didn't need to be in like structured activities or anything like that. So the amount of time in this movie that they spend climbing up on whatever their roofs in order to get into attics or swimming uh, by the lake, the number of like near death experiences they have, the number of times they're in the cemetery together at night. It's like, it's really like it's, it is a bygone era that also looks super, you know, necessary to the project of growing up and also like so dangerous that you couldn't, you know, (laughs) let kids get away with it. If you wanted yeah. to, it's a problem. Yeah, I think there's like this, um, now that I'm thinking about it, like just thinking about like kids and like, I don't know if this is the right word, but like the futility of death. Like they're like kind of like, you know, even though they're 12 and you do develop as, as you get older, right? Like you do develop more fears, I think, um, and are more reserved, but they're at this point where they're still not quite sure about or they're at this point where maybe they don't always understand future looking consequences of their actions. Right. Um, and so there's so many things that, you know, could, you know, even just them like going on a bike ride to whatever this other town is. Right. And they meet up with Brendan Fraser's character and, um, you know, he's just like this, this war vet and they just like sit down and chit chat with him. Yeah. That would have been like hugely problematic in today's. I was world. so fucking worried as I was having never seen the movie before. Like I'm like, oh, is he gonna fucking hit on one of them or something? Like what? What kind of gross no. thing is gonna happen here? But no, they're just learning about the Vietnam War from <laughs> exactly. and like Purple Hearts are not actually honors or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Again, like though, I, I mean, this also the 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 way that the Vietnam War features in '90s movies. <clears throat> whether it's nostalgic or like from the present day, like whatever somebody is, I don't know, whatever. Like that's also an interesting thing that we don't need to belabor here. Cause it's such a short scene. It's just, yeah, it is of, such a yeah. short scene, but like that scene, well, there's so many scenes too. I think like a big thing 
that maybe I should have got as a kid, but I don't know. Again, it might have been subliminal. Is that like you don't have to trust everything your parents tell you, right? And so like in that Vietnam scene, I think one of the girls is like, oh, well, my mom or my dad said or my parents said this. And he's just like, well, this is my experience, right? Um, and there's a point where a different scene where Chrissy, someone's like, they're talking about something <sighs> yes, with sex. Exactly. And Chrissy's like, I'm beginning to realize like maybe everything my mom, my mom isn't telling me the whole truth or something like that. And then you have Roberta, right? Who's like my, she finds the newspaper article and she's like, my dad lied to me. Yeah, right. So there's like all of these narratives around our parents telling mm-hmm. us that life is one way when life is a lot of ways and, uh-huh. and we have to make sense of it ourselves. Right. Well, I mean, that's how it was in the 90s. Fortunately, uh, more and more states are passing laws that make it impossible for anybody but your parents to tell you how life is. So that's uh, thankfully we won't have to deal with the complications of growing up anymore. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Utopia Thanks. is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fuck. Anyway, the uh, that is all that is all quite astute that the the way that they sort of navigate the differences between their experiences and what their parents have told them. The the question about Thora Birch's character Teeny as a teen girl. So she we are there was a recent article in the Atlantic excerpted from a book about uh, being about the label. Well, it's not about this, but like. It talks about the label of being boy crazy as uh, a good like this is an article written by somebody who basically grew up in really rural Arkansas in poverty and got out. And she's now reconnecting with one of her high school friends who sort of went in another direction. And her high school friend was coded as boy crazy, which turns out to have meant essentially just like massively vulnerable to all kinds of sort of like exploitation and bad life outcomes and blah, 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 or like exploitation, vulnerability, bad life outcomes as seen from the perspective of the Atlantic is the, uh, is a better way to sort of put that. So like, so thinking about the way that Thor Birch's character as a teenager is developed, like she is the one who's like, I, whatever, they're taking the 17 quiz or whatever it is. And like, she's, (laughs) she's very pleased with being like the sexual dynamo or whatever the fuck it is she and she seems to know a lot more about sex than everybody else we were texting this morning about like we only see her parents for like a glimpse through a window and they were they're having some sort of party we know that they're country club people and that she thinks they're assholes her words are, and like i was like are they supposed to be swingers is that like what we were <laughs> is that what we were watching like one of these like 1970s styles sort of like or like my question is basically Thor Birch seems to have not only sort of an attraction to or curiosity about, but also like to be relatively solidly informed about like what sex entails relative to her friends. And I'm like, where did she get that from? Did her parents tell her that? Is it from watching drive-in movies like from her rooftop? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I feel like um, <clears throat> Thor Birch's ca- uh, character, Teeny even though I just said all of them were kind of like free to do whatever, it seemed like Thora's parents were the least sort of like involved in her life. Like they really didn't pay attention to her at all. And I think that was actually part of the narrative when 
Demi Moore is introducing Teeny, right? That her parents are just like these socialites and like have their own life and Teeny is just like on her own doing her own thing, right? So she is reading and exploring and doing all these other things that maybe um, people that had more involved parents were like air quoting, like quote unquote, protecting them from. But Teeny didn't have parents to be like, you know, here's what you should read. Here's what you shouldn't read. This is appropriate. This is not appropriate. She was just sort of like, she could explore anything. Um, and I feel like I had friends like that. Oh, sure. Um, uh-huh. That Same. like, I felt like, honestly, they were the friends who um, had bo- like both parents working. They spent a lot of time alone after school. And I always felt like those were the the friends of mine that were like, more advanced <laughs> well, yeah. um, and like new things that I didn't know. But it was mostly, I think, because my mom was a stay at home mom and like very much knew what I was reading and what I was watching and all of these things. Totally. I mean, there's a big it's it seems important that all four of these female characters as girls have a lot of free time and independence to do stuff together. It's important that Roberta and Sam's parents are sort of like they're I, I don't, don't want to overuse the word coded, but like I think we're we're supposed to understand that there are like structural impediments to them paying attention to their kids, like whatever Sam's parents are going through a divorce and her mom's doing her own thing or whatever with the high boots and that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and Roberta's being raised by a single dad since her mom died, etc. Chrissy's parents are trying to give her just as much information as she needs in order to stop asking questions for a while, it seems like. But, like, it's not that they're uninterested. It's, like, it's only Teeny's parents who are coded as, like, they have the time. They have the material means to pay attention to her. And they just don't give a shit. And and which is really what it's like. I'm One of my best friends when I was younger, like... This would have been when I was in elementary school, like nine or 11 or whatever. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in State College, Pennsylvania. Or I grew up from like the ages of three to 11 when I moved to Madison in State College, Pennsylvania, like on the end of this sort of like on the end of Grandview Road or whatever in Lamont, technically, like across a big bridge from uh, State College and the university and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and there was like down the hill from my house, there was another kid who was almost exactly my age. Maybe he was a year older than me. We were best friends, quote unquote, by which I mean, like we spent all our free time together and there was plenty of it. And we got to like, we, it was not rural, but also not suburban. There was just a lot of space, a lot mm-hmm. of like trouble to get into. And he loved to get into trouble. Uh, he was very clearly an oopsie, like, all of his brothers and sisters, and he had a lot of them, were in their 20s. And, like, here he is, like, a seven-year-old. Uh, and so, like, I, I don't know what was, like, his dad was a fairly famous professor uh, at Penn State. Not that that meant anything to me at the time. And his mom was always around, but I was given to understand, and maybe I'm just inferring or, like, making bad inferences here, that she was, like self-medicating in one way or another and was not really very present 
my parents like my parents were like no sugared cereal, no video games. Well, not no video games, but like you don't need to have the latest thing. But like because Sean was down the street, I was like, well, this is where I'm going to get it all from because he always had the like and I remember my parents. I, I hope I fucking never say this about uh, a friend's parents, like one of Margaret's friend's parents. It seemed like I was pestering them to whatever for like just an original NES, you know, and they were like and I was like, but Sean has one. And they were like, <laughs> they're like, Sean's parents buy him that stuff so they don't have to spend time with him. And I was like, <laughs> holy, like as a seven year old, I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> holy shit. But then all also like looking back, I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I totally see that now. They like, they wanted they wanted a way for him to entertain himself without like anyway, the point is they were teeny's parents, essentially. And Sean had that, like, even in elementary school, had this like I mean, there was like an anger about him, too. And I don't know how much of that that was like trauma processing and how much of that was just his personality. But like. Yeah, 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 I feel like as kids, it comes out as like, oh, these ones, these kids are more mature than me. Uh Um, But that's not necessarily the case, I don't think. (laughs) Oh, no, it's like these kids are not actually going to suffer immediate consequences for taking risks that they do as long as it doesn't kill them or like expose their parents to liability. So like they do know more stuff and are more familiar with like the ways of the world that is unsheltered from parents. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my question is of these girls, when you were 12, which one would you oh, have pursued? Oh, that's so great. Which one would I have pursued? I really thought you were going to be like, which one would you have been? Um, <laughs> no, pursued. You can also do which one have you? would you have been. Uh, which one would I have been romantically interested in at age 12? Now I have to go back and think about who I was romantically interested in at age 12. <laughs> I mean, God damn it, it would have been teeny for me. Like, uh, yeah. 12-year-old me would have definitely been interested in teeny. I wouldn't have gotten smart and gotten into Roberta until I was like 16 or 17 is the (laughs) answer to that question, quite honestly. I would never have been interested in Chrissy, not because of anything about whatever her looks or – but just because of her interests and her vision of the world. Yeah, you know, I say like I would have I would have been into Roberta for sure. In college, I sure would have been in, into Sam. So like these are like okay. stages of my life. <laughs> is essentially yeah. what this what this is. I would have been I would at a certain point I would have been like, Teeny is just not very interesting, and it turns out that virtually everyone is pretty, to one extent or another. And so like, I don't know, girls who are into being sort of ostentatiously pretty and whatever, like if that was their thing, that just got significantly less interesting as like high school happened. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. so. I think, um, Roberta, it's, it's like funny that Roberta is the first one out of all of them that like we see has this boy, th- like you, like predictably it would have been teeny, right? Like a mm-hmm. boy would have, she would have been the one with a boyfriend at that time, yeah, right? right? Or like right. three boyfriends. But we don't know anything about Teeny and right. or like 
boy, boys at all. All um, that we know is that she's interested in them, but yeah. like nothing dangerous happens. You know, like that's that. Yeah. Is the odd thing. I was like, when Brendan Fraser came in, I was like, oh, fuck. Like, like here is like, Teeny is going to do something super inappropriate here. And mm-hmm. no, no, it's just. Other, no. other than share her orange soda, she does right, exactly. <laughs> Actually, Chrissy's orange soda, not even hers. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> She's like, what the fuck, Chrissy? <laughs> yeah. And then Chrissy's so sad. Right, no. um, but I do think that 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 tracks for me in terms of like um boys my experience was boys reach this age mm-hmm. where there is an attraction to girls that have like some it's not a quirk but like have a thing about them right like that Who are, are interesting that are tom, tomboys <laughs> or that like um I, I i do think that there there's a point like for there's a point in my life and I think a lot of girls' lives that when you were a tomboy, you no boys wanted to be with you. Like they didn't mm-hmm. want to be their your girlfriend, boyfriend thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then I feel like there's like later in life stage where they're like, Oh, actually like there is really awesome qualities <laughs> about people that are that are, you know, tomboys, like girls that are tomboys. Same with um, Sam, right? She's, mm-hmm. she's, to me, Sam is like the artist, right? Like yeah, exactly, a little, yeah. like there's something about her that, um, that's under the surface. And mm-hmm. I think the thing about Teeny is that there doesn't seem to be anything under the surface. <laughs> or like that is certainly not what she's trying to let people in on if there is something. Like she wants to be all outward appearance. Yeah. Yeah. That's and I think yeah. you're. It's interesting to think like you as a boy being like that fades really quickly. <laughs> it, it, it did. I, I mean, it. I don't know that that faded so quickly. I like. I have a pretty clear memory of being in like maybe this is eighth grade and like home ec, and being like all the like all the girls who like are really good at school are suddenly. There are two distinct moments of this. One happened in eighth grade and one happened sophomore year of high school in which I was like, all the girls who have always been really good at school forever and kind of nerdy or whatever. And like, they don't like, they're not, they're not the ostensibly like the prettiest popular girls or whatever. I'm like, they're, they are, they are hot period. Like, like suddenly I'm like, I'm like, (laughs) wait, not only are they good at school, but they're also really pretty. Is this po- like no 80s movie had led me to believe that this was possible. <laughs> like what, this is what is amazing. happening here? And so like, I mean, in the same thing with like every athletic woman that I have known throughout my life is like people who were like, you know, really into sports, women who are really into sports and really good at them. Like it was never, I don't think for me that I just like wasn't attracted to them, but like, again, their project was not, being pretty right which was so aligned with being popular from like sixth grade like through all of middle school basically and then like had this residual quality in high school and then suddenly i was like oh that's all there is that's all there is to these people that was never true either like pretty people were also more interesting it turns out but like suddenly like there was this whole world of of people that were attractive (laughs) and interesting like in all these sort of different ways yeah 
And I think, like, thinking of middle school and high school, for me, like, this tracks so much. Like, Teeny is obsessed with boob size, right? Like, yes. That's, like, right. all she cares about. And for me, I think back to, like, what in high school and middle school, like, the girls that were hot, that literally yeah. the only reason yeah. they were hot is because they had boobs. Yes. God, <laughs> I, like, that was such a thing. I know. And I clearly didn't. And so it just was like, um, I look back now and I, uh, it just blows my mind that, like, the the hot girls – end up being just the ones that developed earlier. Yeah. And then the yeah. ones that developed later are just, you know, I think they, they, yeah, like I didn't really know, there were no boys really that interested in me until halfway through my junior year. Very interesting. Like uh, the thing about like the girls who develop earliest being the really attractive one, that also played into a real fucking virgin whore dichotomy, at least in, my childhood mm-hmm. like there were definitely there were girls who sort of developed earlier and were like popular and pretty and that kind of hot and then there were girls who were who were coded fuck I keep using that word who were just like who were seen socially as much more somehow questionable like i like one of my like good friends through like i, I feel like i feel like we went out for a week in 7th grade or something like that which we, we, you know, we never saw each other outside of school. And then I heard from somebody else that we were broken up, um, <laughs> that kind of relationship. She's now a professor someplace, uh, because, but like she, like, I feel like she got boobs in like sixth grade and mm-hmm. at, like had huge boobs by eighth grade. And that was like the fact about her period. Yeah. Um, and she was like a really, like she, she did not care for the popular kids of either gender she was doing her own thing she was really cool in a way that was not legible to middle school or early high school society at that time so like you know i like i am she always had like a a cohort of like really good friends her mom was fucking awesome uh her dad was not in the picture like she knew who she was and what she was about uh, in a way that really sort of came through in high school and later. Mm-hmm. But like in those middle school days, being like in like an obviously sexually developed body, it was fucked up the way that like boys talked about her. Like she wasn't somebody who needed respect of any kind. She wasn't one of the pretty girls who you would like, who you were supposed to put on a pedestal. I mean, she was pretty, but like she wasn't like one, you know, one of the popular girls that you put on a pedestal, which meant that you got to, as a boy, you got to talk about her body and were expected to talk about her body in ways that were (laughs) really fucking problematic really problematic is like the the nice way of describing it just like ways that like put her down as a person period so like that yeah that that's an interesting aspect of yeah growing up yeah i think so and i but that's the one thing i did identify with teeny right is that like she aspires to that right she's like using balloons full of pudding like (laughs) i kid you not like that I didn't use balloons full of pudding, but like <laughs> there were for sure, like I had two older sisters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like, this is just the reality. Like they had 
that my both of my sisters were like bombshells and had big boobs and then there was me and people were just like what the hell happened to Rachel <laughs> like she clearly fell off the wagon um on this one um but like you know as middle school girl I would I would steal their bras and wear them because then it looked like I had <laughs> but I didn't have like so there was like but because the girls that developed early were part of were privy to this hella problematic thing you just described in right, terms right. of sexualizing their body but then the girls like me who like clearly haven't developed right. also got made fun of yeah exactly and right. not like oh like rachel you know doesn't have any like you're you know flat you know uh what, yeah. what is something about it was like a um they used to call us something call me something like like a wood Something about a wooden board. I don't yeah, that, I, like flat as a board or something like that was yeah, like a phrase I don't or know. something. Um, yeah. So like you couldn't win. Yeah, exa- so, exactly. Exactly. This is the part that like, you know, as a middle schooler, I, I hope that this is a universal experience. It was definitely my experience. <clears throat> I thought that like I was the only person who had something weird about their body or whatever that other people would make fun of for whatever reason. And everybody else was fully comfortable in like the bodies that they, they were in, which is just, just an utter lie that everybody is dealing with this bullshit. And, uh, and for some reason it's cool in middle school to externalize that and like, you know, give yourself a temporary reprieve from your own misery by like, you know, putting that on somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. That could, that could be it. Um, no, I, I, I also had that same feeling like, why am I the only one who like clearly does not have any like happiness with my own body or, or doesn't want to change it. Cause everyone else seemed super comfortable in it. But yeah. Um, I don't know. I think the, the scene that we were texting about earlier, right. Where Roberta's like taping, yeah, her uh-huh. boobs, and she like doesn't want them because she's this tomboy. Yeah, I never, I never had that experience. Obviously, <laughs> um, I was trying to do the opposite. I was like wearing a regular bra under my sports bra, so it looked like I had boobs. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, and then and then she like stops taping them right when she she meets a boy, and I think there's just like so much packed into that. Oh yes. Like, like I don't know, uh, through line in the movie <laughs> in that it's not until she decides that she likes another boy that she wants to, like, show off her body. Yeah, that was really interesting. And let's talk about that for a second. First of all, do you know who, like, what is the name of that actor who plays that Wormer boy? Devon something? Yeah, yeah, because he he's been in other stuff. Yeah, Chelsea Chelsea was like, oh my god, that's what's his face, and I don't remember his name, and I'm like, who? And she's like, this he was he was totally a heartthrob in like the early like 2000s. Oh my god, I had the biggest crush on him. I'm like, what? Devin Devin Sawa. That's right. That's right. I'm like, I don't know who the fuck that is. (laughs) So he was also in the movie Casper. Did you ever watch the movie Casper with Christina? He was in the movie Casper with Christina Ritchie. So that's why. Oh, oh, yeah. Because I think I texted you and I was like, did these, wait, were these two like a thing? Because they were in these two movies back to back. But I don't know. The internet interwebs say they were never a thing. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That. Okay. So let's talk about that storyline real quickly in which. Christina Ricci, like, so first of all, great first kiss scene, I thought, like, between Christina Ricci and Devon Sawa, 
Uh, yeah, and I think like just so epitomized like what that like that scene was so perfect because that's mm-hmm. so often how the first kiss goes. Yeah. It's like everything is so awkward. <laughs> it's so awkward. Like so obviously, I was I was paying attention to uh, the Wormer Boys' reaction. I, I very much identified with this. Like I feel like I had in my own life something like four first kisses in which like. <laughs> I know how I know how weird that sounds like. Let's say that this is over a period of like eighth grade to. I mean, I'm not counting anything that like happened in like sixth or seventh grade because nothing really happened and whatever. Like any kisses that did happen didn't count as quite real, but it was really like eighth grade to sophomore year. Kissing was an infrequent enough part, like portion of my life uh, that happened sporadically enough that for like three or four times, like it felt like I had the same reaction, essentially, the first kiss, which is like it is, you know, after a whole lifetime of learning how far it is appropriate to stand from someone else, you know, that, that is not a family member to like it is it's like traumatic and uncomfortable and awkward to something like be really in somebody else's space in that way that like like a kiss happens. And then like and then it happens and like. I felt like my reaction, I mean, I was always sort of behind the eight ball on this or like behind timing. I was like, (laughs) and then I'm like, and then like by the time it's, it's over, it's sort of like we're, okay. So there was this one time in eighth grade in which like I was dating, I was dating this girl named Katie, which basically meant I was hanging out at her house with like a mutual friend and somebody else. And we were boyfriend and girlfriend in exactly that way that it's just declared and is not actually like does not actually involve spending much time together. But here we are spending time together. And then we were going to go our separate ways. She and her friend were going to go one direction on Prospect Avenue and I was going to go uh, back to my house. And so like we start to walk away and her friend is like, aren't you going to aren't you going to like kiss him goodbye? And she's like, oh, you're right. And she like walks back <laughs> towards me and gets right in my space and like. And like it was soft and lovely, and she like, and she's like, okay, well, bye. And I was like, and like, like, I had this incomparable feeling of like, holy fuck, what has just happened? Like angels singing and all that kind of. Thing. I was like, I was like, and so like, you know what it was like? It was like walking out of the tattoo parlor after like a twenty minute tattoo. There was like that level of endorphins, like uh, just like coursing through my body. So like that experience. So like I saw all that on his face, and I was like, okay, nice job. It's like awkward kiss. He's trying to be cool, but is really like floored, <laughs> which is great. Christina Ricci's reaction was also good, but I like I, whatever. That's all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love this. I was thinking about when you said four first kisses, and I was like, what? And then I was like, wait, no, I get what he's saying. Because I feel like, <laughs> I feel like in fifth grade, right, you had this quote unquote, you know, boyfriend, yeah. which basically just mean we went to roller skating parties. Oh, and during yeah. the slow dance, you like held hands. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. my dad would always take me to the roller skating parties. And so I, I was always like, I can't, I can't hold your hand. Like my dad's watching (laughs) what in the world. And so I would always be like super nervous the whole time. Anyway. So that, that was my, my fifth grade boyfriend, Paul. And, um, I don't think he and I ever kissed on the lips, but I can remember that being like, he would kiss me on the cheek and I, I would be like super 
embarrassing. So like, I felt like there was that like first kiss experience, okay. right? Yeah. Um, where I was like, stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, my grandma? <laughs> But I like clearly am not willing to kiss you on the lips because you can get pregnant from French kissing. <laughs> exactly, as Chrissy will tell you. Per Chrissy, um, men can't help themselves. <laughs> That's like the best line I think. Actually, um, it absolutely is. Um, but then you had like the first like kiss on the lips, and then that that's like just nice and whatever, like quick. And then like, there's the first kiss. that's like actually a kiss, right? Uh-huh. Like there's like multiple levels of this, like first kiss yeah, that I can like yeah. think of. Uh-huh. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know in my life, <laughs> in my 30, almost 35 years of life that I've ever initiated a first kiss <laughs> or initiated a kiss. Like now really? that I think about it. Um, yeah. That's interesting. That is I interesting. What that says about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, but like I would be, I think it, like Roberta wouldn't have initiated that. No way. And she really like she in that moment she's sort of like she was harder to read than the yeah boy like how she feels about it in general. I mean, that's a tomboy thing though. She like was like if you tell anyone I'll like kick your ass. Yeah, exactly. Like, like I will the beat the out shit you. out of you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so, but that's like a tomboy thing of like I like this, mm-hmm. right? But I, but I don't want other people to know that I like this because mm. then I'll be less of a tomboy. I'll right. be less of this like athletic person, which is as you, <laughs> as you know, something that like I recently had a conversation about is like how do you be both feminine, yeah, yeah, or present as like I am a, I am heterosexual, like I yeah. want to be with men. But the way I go about the world is is very tomboyish, I guess. And so, and I don't want people. I want people to see both of those sides of me. But sometimes yeah. I feel like, particularly men, don't don't see both of those sides all the time. <laughs> That's so interesting. That's so interesting. You'd think by like, you know, by the time men have been to college it is possible to distinguish between women athletes who are into men and women athletes who are not <laughs> like, it's not, it's, I don't feel like it's that fucking complicated or that it should be like, like whatever women should like athletic women should feel like they are aliens somehow or constantly prone to being sort of mis yeah. understood. Yeah. It's not even that, too. Like, I think it's an identity thing. Like, I think I, like, Roberta, like, always wanted to retain my identity as the athlete. Like, I was the girl athlete, and I didn't want people to see me any other way, right? Yeah. Oh, no. Yes. Senior yearbook, right? Like, it was me and Adam. We were, like, you know, every which is a stupid problematic thing where we vote on, like, the prettiest and best eyes and best hair and all those Uh things. And I was best athlete, and that was, like... That was like my accomplishment yeah. in high school is yeah. that I am listed as best athlete with Adam Warner and we took a photo together yeah. hanging on the hoop of the yeah, basketball yeah. from the basketball um court. So like for me, if I were to like hang out with boys and be like boy crazy, like right, going right, back right. to what you're talking yeah. about, like that would have like tarnished my image right. as the athlete. 
because you can only be one thing. You exactly. Know, that's that's yeah. that was perfect. Thank you for finishing my yeah. thought. That yeah. was what I was trying to get at. Is like people can't think of humans as these like complex, <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, folks that have multiple. It's not even multiple identities. It's just yeah. It's just my identity is not one thing or the other. It's it's wrapped up in a lot of things. I mean. I would hate to like this is not this is not what Kimberly Crenshaw is talking about when she is like bemoaning single issue analysis in uh, academia. And yet it's not not like those habits of mind, you know, structure yeah. virtually uh, everything that we do. So that was an, like here's here's a here's a very real, like I don't know the answer to this question. and I'm wondering if you do. Was Rosie O'Donnell out in 1995? I don't think she was. I don't think she was either. I think th- that was the point. She had the Rosie O'Donnell show, I think, because I don't. I I actually <laughs> really loved the Rosie O'Donnell show. Like as a kid, I don't know why. My, like I was, I don't know why I liked it. Um, she was just like fun yeah. and like loud, mm-hmm. and I loved that about her. And she used to have this. She would sit at her desk. I don't know if it, did you ever watch the Rosie O'Donnell show? Nope. Okay, so she would like sit at her desk, and she had these. Do you remember Koosh balls? Oh yeah, yeah. So she had koosh balls and she had this like sling and she would like sling koosh balls into the audience. And I had a sling koosh ball thing like that. It was like a, uh-huh. like, oh, yeah. Ro- no, no, I feel I like, like Rosie yeah, O'Donnell yeah, made yeah. that like popular because she would sling koosh balls. Um, and that's all I really remember about the Rosie O'Donnell show. But I feel like in 95 when that was still, um, that, that, that show was still happening and I don't think she had come out until after. The other reason why is like, this will give you some insight into like how I was raised, but uh, I would say if if my parents knew that Rosie O'Donnell had come out, I honestly don't know that they would have let me watch the Rosie O'Donnell show. Wow! Even though I lo- I mean I loved it, like I would have watched it <laughs> somewhere at at Ashley's house where I could do whatever I wanted. Um, but my parents were um, they're just yeah, they were not open-minded about anything. <laughs> and so if that were the case, like, I don't, I don't know that they would have been as open, which is so telling, right? And that like, nothing about Rosie O'Donnell changed. Exactly. <laughs> right? right. Like when she came out, like, she's still the same person, but yeah. it was just a conservative, religious yeah. household. Yeah. I mean, like, so what's interesting to me about that question, Rosie O'Donnell as a figure in 1995, a league of their own was earlier than this, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Rosie O'Donnell had been playing, if not queer coded, then certainly like mask coded, uh, characters for some time, whether she was out or not. And like, this was, so that was an odd casting choice for me in this film, given Given what we've been talking about, about Roberta's character as a child, as somebody who can be an athlete and be heterosexually into boys and okay with her sort of like with I mean, with her femme presentation, basically with her womanly body or whatever. So like like that, that's just interesting. And the the. It's it's just weird to real. So I get it. I get that she's a doctor as a result of like her particular sort of uh, her mom's death, basically, or like that is like one of the things that drives her into medicine. But like adult Rosie does not adult Roberta does not mention having a significant other. This is also in the 90s where like 
it's just odd that the women in this show, the adult women in the mid-90s who are professionally successful are not the ones who have families or husbands or are having babies, you know? Like, mm-hmm. there's a real sort of like... There's a real like second wave feminism vibe around the way that they grow up. And so like we're supposed to understand that they are all heterosexual, but that like some life pathways, specifically ones that involve some sort of professional outside the home success, are inimical to family happiness, which that that feels dated. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just goes to the sort of the ending scene where they're playing truth or dare and they ask Sam, right? Are you, are you happy? Yeah. And then they ask, they ask two of them, are you happy? Maybe Teeny or Robert. I don't uh-huh. know. Yeah. One of them. Yeah. And I think as a kid watching this, I, w- I would have, I would have been like, Sam is super unhappy. Like she seems super unhappy to me. Um, but now I feel like I would be considered Sam, um, maybe. Interesting. Um, or I don't know. I don't know who I would be considered. We're talking um, about the adult characters now? Yeah. I don't know. Because I feel like there's Teeny who's like had multiple divorces. <laughs> right. Of course. There's Sam who doesn't seem like she's been – like Sam almost seems like – she also like you don't know her sexuality really. I don't right, think right. Um, that to me more style in this movie is so great. Which I like. So good. I, I don't like her sunglasses, but like the whatever. But it's so like, Demi Moore. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And then you don't you don't know uh, Rosie O'Donnell's character's sexuality either. And I think you, as a kid, I got the perception of like, you want to be Chrissy actually. Like, yeah, she's the happiest, like clearly. Yes, obviously the way to be is to remain innocent. Let the guy with the glasses French kiss you and bing, bang, boom, baby. And and like, that is the way, like maintain everything exactly like it was when like your mom owned this house, live in the house that you grew up in. It's like, it's a deeply conservative message really like it's but i mean and we don't know that chrissy has a job either she never talks about of course because that's not fucking important (laughs) right or it's not possible to be both of these things at the same time correct i think that's the you know so again this like subliminal messaging that you get from this is that if you don't get married and you don't have kids you're going to grow up to be like a miserable woman who like doesn't have a lot of friends and lives alone. Exactly. You're going And to as if that's like not cool. And I'm like, I don't have a lot of friends and I live alone and I fucking love my life. So. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Suck it, 1995. It, but like, seriously, it's like Rosie O'Donnell's character is just like, she is, she's a doctor. She's married to her job. Demi Moore still like looking for herself and like struggling for a, a, a really like reality bites kind of sense of like authenticity or something like that, you know. Uh, but these characters are coded as always sort of like searching for it's not it's not even like either they're searching like Sam is or they are sort of compensating for the lack of something that would just be so much easier if they would be housewives. I don't I don't understand what's yeah. it's really it's really interesting. 
Do you know the source material for this movie? No. I don't either. I don't even know if it had it. I didn't do any research beyond watching the movie. No, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder um, if this came from some kind of, uh, from, you know, a Stephen King-like uh, yeah. earlier narrative, but I just don't know. When did when did Stand By Me come out? Right around then. Now I'm going to look it up. I just wonder if this was like a, okay, we got to make oh, one. Oh, yeah. For, for, for the girls? Yeah. For the girls. For the girls. <laughs> Obviously, because they can't connect with oh, what the man. boys do. 1986. Yeah, so I yeah. wonder if it was sort of a response to that. I don't know. Yeah. Just a nostalgia uh, trap kind of thing. Interesting. This is like, Yeah. So, yeah, and I th- the happiness thing too, right? I'm just remembering it. Like they ask Chrissy, "Are you happy?" And she's just like, "Oh my gosh, yes! Like I'm so happy. Like I feel like I could burst. Yes, uh-huh. Like whatever." Um, and then they ask Robert. No, they ask Sam, "Are you happy?" And she's just like, "No." Like, and and that's supposed to be bad, right? Right. And I think in reality. Well, everyone just has their own happiness, right? Right, like, yeah. I don't know. There, there's so much there to unpack. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> in addition to the fact that, like, the movie ends with these four grown-ass women just dominating some neighborhood kids in Red Rover, which is <laughs> hilarious. That's, that's what brings the movie full circle, really. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's this really weird take on girl power, basically. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah, that's all. That's all. Yeah. And I think, you know, when when Roberta says she's not happy. No, sorry. When Sam says she's not happy, Roberta has some sort of like retort to that. Right. Yeah. Around like, um, like you can't shut people out of your life. Like it's better to be unhappy and surrounded by people or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't yeah. remember. Yeah. But there's some sort of like retort that she's like giving her this advice <laughs> about That's not, right. um, not being so, I don't know, living in solitude. And then they make this pact, right. That they're, they're going to meet more often and, right, and right. that's going to make them all happier. <laughs> it's yeah, exactly. And like now who doesn't know anything about life? Chrissy is the one who is, uh, whatever fulfilled and all, Everybody else's existential question. I mean, maybe I'm reading more conservative messaging or ideology underneath the movie than than there is. But yeah, this is, like this didn't occur to me. P.S. During watching it, it's only talking about it that I'm like, yeah, what no, the me fuck? either. And I I do wonder, like the director and like if it was it was supposed to make you think about like happiness being whatever you want to make it, and and it's okay to say that you're not happy, like. That yeah. to normalize that, or if it was this more conservative undertone of like, I, I don't know, I don't know. It'd be interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see that like you've got these various models of sort of girlhood at twelve, and then that looks very different when they're all adults. Ostensibly, you have these like pathways to aspire to the artist, the professional, the actress, the homemaker, but those are not at all equivalently sort of like portrait, you know, that's all. Yeah. And I think the age thing too, we've talked about that in other movies, but like when I rewatched it, I'm like, I feel like these women 
all but Chrissy are in their like 40s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like it gives this perception that they're like maybe in their late 20s, early 30s, because this is this is literally out of the friend group, the first baby. Yeah, right. And Chrissy and so, as a homemaker, you would exp- yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. I feel like they all would have been much older. I mean, um, in real life, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, right. In 19, the movie takes place. The the memories take place literally in 1970, and they are 12. So if we okay. if we expect that this is 1995, this is 25 years later. Then they are all 37. But yeah, that, so yeah. that doesn't really track. <laughs> no, that doesn't really track. That doesn't. Really, well, look, maybe it took Chrissy a long time to figure out how to make babies. You know. You <laughs> They, they uh, a lot of variations took a lot of, of water, water in of the, the garden. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is this how you do it? <laughs> Is it successfully watered? <laughs> I love it. Oh my god! So, like, one other aspect of this, like, there's, uh, there's more things to talk about. And if you have more questions for me, please. I was struck by the presence once again in this movie is in Home Alone. I mean, there's all these like tropes that seemed only to come up in 90s movies that I only realized like rewatching them all. But like the weird old man of town, right? Like you see this in Home Alone with the guy with the snow shovel in this like gated community. Well, yeah. Gated community, this, Who ends up being always a, like the hero. Or yeah, like a nice guy. I mean, yeah, that story was ludicrous in this particular movie. He's like. He's the weird man who people are scared of. He saves Sam from the sewer in this very weird scene. Uh, And then it turns out that he is the father of these two murdered boys whose like whose murder is like the thing. One of the many things that like helps these 12 year old girls like lose their innocence and realize that their town is also dangerous. The little the interaction that he has with Sam at the end is. I mean, it's weird for a lot of reasons, but I just feel like it's poorly <laughs> written too. the way that like he's like, <laughs> first of all, why is he dressed like he's like a 1920s minor? That's that's question one. Like he's this like, is always 1970s, in overalls, always like, in overalls and a jacket with like a pocket watch. It's very odd. He's he's like he's literally like a hobo from a 1930s movie. And you're like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> that rides a bike around. That like, rides a bike so around many- and only comes out at night. It's like it's like everybody's like, you know what? What if like. What if we just took the one character from To Kill a Mockingbird and just put him in every little small town drama exactly, that we have? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, there was another one, um, to the movie um, Tom and Huck. Did you ever watch oh, Tom Oh, I Huck? didn't watch that? No. Uh, I feel like there's a crazy, like yeah. a, you know, like townie, like yeah, this crazy yeah, yeah. town person. Right. So, like, that coding is weird. But then also it turns out that, like, I'm like, oh, fuck, did he murder these kids? And then I'm like, oh, no, he's the dad. And he's like... I never thought that, you know, maybe I could have done something if I hadn't been at that bar. Ah, drink got you. I see. Like, what? Like, so he's telling this story about, like, his family was murdered. This yeah. is this 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 is this thing that the town as a whole psychologically puts out of its mind in order mm-hmm. to construct a vision of itself for itself and its children as this safe community. There are we might as well just say zero non-white characters in this yes. film. The name of the motherfucking subdivision is Gaslight Edition, yes. which is <laughs> I noticed that. I totally noticed that. It's like Gaslight that makes <laughs> This is this is fascinating. Like, what is this a callback to the 1930s movie? Like the whatever. Anyway, uh, 
gaslight edition. So like, uh, so like there has been this gruesome murder that the town is like keeping not secret, but is certainly not focusing on in order to sort of preserve its sense as like a safe community for the whites. Uh, and here's this creepy old man who's like shows up the cemetery and it turns out that these murdered kids were his family and his deep sense of shame results from the fact that if he hadn't been at the bar, maybe he could have done something. And I'm like, who the fuck murdered these kids and where are they? If this murder has gone unsolved, the town, you have a bigger problem than the guy who happened to be drinking while his family was murdered. Jesus yeah. Christ. That was just yeah, striking that's... to me. Yeah, that, that storyline didn't really get sussed out very well. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's always this sort of character that everyone is scared of and then ends up being, you know, this super sweet, kind person and that everyone misunderstands. Right. right? Rachel, um, if you just look beneath the surface. Exactly. And I feel like, again, like there is this undertone. I feel like growing up in rural America, like, we we had a guy that every we called him Crazy Dan, yeah, yeah, um, for for better or for worse, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's what we called him. But I think there was this thing in the '90s where like movies were showing, and so we're like, clearly yes, every yes. small town right. has one of these. Like, let's find him. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did, and Dan was in my dad's grade, mm-hmm. and my dad will like will tell you he was like he was the one of the best athletes that ever went through our school. Like he was incredible. Um, and, um, he was married and his wife died and the story was that he suffocated her with the pillowcase. I on like, literally I, I asked my dad cause we were, I, when I was home like a year, uh-huh. within the last year I saw Dan like walking and I was like, Hey, that's Dan. Wait, I don't use the words that we used to use because that was not appropriate. Um, And I was like, you know, whatever, like what was really the story behind that? And my dad was like, I really don't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. But is it just an unsolved? I'm just like, what? How did we not solve this thing? Like, I don't know. It's weird. But I I feel like everyone kind of made up one of those stories in the 90s. And I wonder if part of it's because these movies made them up for us. Yeah. I mean, there's that. There's also the fact that, like, I I still feel like small communities have their sort of misfits and outcasts of various kind that are acknowledged as such by the community without literally being cast out. Like, it's a a weird, it's like, it's a weird phenomenon of contemporary life, I feel like, that, like... There's like, there's like a move. I don't know how to say this exactly. There's a move to be like, why won't the state come in and intervene with whatever these weirdos of one kind or another in in like, why can't we criminalize whatever that they are doing so that like they can be taken away to someplace we don't do, you know, asylums anymore. So like, but shouldn't there be some institution that like, so that like they are like fully separated from society it's odd like i'm thinking like you know in uh the small communities the the rural communities in wisconsin uh with which i'm familiar there are these characters 
still who have like they are connected to families. They are members of the community. They sometimes serve in sort of official roles, but they're also colossal fuck ups. They, I mean, speaking for my own state, they might have had like eight DUIs over the last whatever and like can't drive anywhere by themselves because their license has been, you know, utterly revoked or like have like. I don't know. Again, <laughs> Wisconsin has serious alcohol problems while drunk. I was going to say in Michigan, it was always like the person that just went to the bar by themselves. Like that's who got cast out. Yeah. 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 Okay. Sure. Yes. I'm like, or like somebody who like burned down their business by accident while drunk or something like that. Like somebody has like fucked up somehow, but they're still there, still living some kind of life. And like, there's always some like, whatever the community simultaneously looks down on them and also recognizes them as one of their own. It's this very weird sort of yeah, relationship. Yeah. That's like, I don't know. I don't know what to like. That's yeah. not, that's. Yeah, that was. Um, mm. It was always it, like, it was striking to see in home alone in particular, which is not the movie that we're talking about mainly because yeah. the kind of affluence and neighborhood mm. in which the McAllisters were raised does not seem like one that would have been friendly to this kind of a character to like, unless it was, I mean, it seemed like all the adults knew that this person was like the old man with the snow shovel was fine people. And it was just Kevin McAllister that didn't, but like that's different than now and then in which like, again, you have what is basically, you know, a ghost from the 1915 coal mining accident or whatever, like <laughs> biking around town through the mist in the cemetery. Yeah. The other thing is, is dear Johnny is their age and their parents are much, at least uh-huh. seem yeah, much right. younger than this man who seems like he's 108. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, you know, he did spend, he, he spent all that time like working on the railroad. So like that'll age you. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. That was, uh, that didn't really match up very well. It was, but, it was just yeah. an odd. I do think that the like broad arc of the movie, like I think about the whole, like everything does sort of center around us kids, this like dear Johnny thing. And yeah. I'm just like, that was my least favorite part of the film as a kid. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Even now I was just like, nah, like, I don't know that you needed that. <laughs> like at all. I, th- yeah. Was the dramatic payoff basically that they are like, I mean, Chrissy basically says, she's like, maybe this town isn't as safe as we thought it was. And I'm like, well, how safe did you think it was? Here's, Roberta reliving the like tragic mm-hmm. tale of her mm-hmm. mom's death. Here is Sam recognizing that like relationships can fall apart. Here's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe that's part of right. The movie is that you just realize that like you don't live in a bubble. And for a yeah, long yeah. time as kids, you think like, sure, you think you're invincible. You think you do live in a bubble in some, in some communities, particularly in the ones that this movie features. And as you get older, you're just like, oh, there's a lot of fucked up shit that happens <laughs> um, that I'm not protected from. Right. Um, and, and I got protected as a kid. But at, at, at what age, right, do we have to let them start, like, experiencing those feelings? Well, 12, apparently. <laughs> 12, yeah, of course. <laughs> that's that's the right that's the right answer. I mean, unless yeah. you're Chrissy, in which case it's never. <laughs> <laughs> Would you have ever, ever imagined yourself doing like what Chrissy and whatever? I, in my head, I want to call him Squints Palomino from Sam. 
Let's just do that. Right? Fuck it. Yes. Squints Palomino. Aren't they, aren't they the same? Yes, they're the same character. Okay. Because um, doesn't Squints end up marrying the life yes, of the pretty lifeguard? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so literally every time I'm just like Squints. Like that's who it is. It's Squints. Great. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so Christine Squints. I don't know what his name is. Uh-huh. Um, but like did you ever imagine based on where you grew up that you would follow that trajectory? Or is that just like a, a girl thing? What? To like live in the house that my that I yeah, had grown and up like, in you know, and like you just re- marry your high school sweetheart. And so honestly, like, I, you know, I was having this conversation not that long ago. So like my parents met when they were freshmen in college. Like, I think they waited a semester before they sort of got together and, uh, and got married. They didn't have me till they were 30. So like that's seven good years of child-free, uh, marriage, which was, which was not that normal. But like the woman I dated in high school, uh, her parents had met in high school. So like our expectation was literally like the models that we had of like what like adult love and romance and like the future held for us was very much like you're going to meet the right person for you uh, relatively early in your life. And then you're going to settle down. And like my parents, neither one of them moved like I guess my mom was my mom's mom was born sort of near Madison, which is odd, but like her family moved around. She like her dad was a professor. Uh, so they like they were at Murray State. Then they were at mm-hmm. Southern Illinois for a long time for like forever. Uh, she went to Wisconsin for undergrad, whatever. Uh, my dad grew up in, you know, the D.C. suburbs, basically went to Wisconsin for undergrad, went to Pittsburgh for grad school and whatever. So like. We didn't end up living near, I didn't end up living near either of my grandparents, but like, but my high school girlfriend did, like everybody was in town basically. And so like, it wasn't, it wasn't just like, could I imagine myself? It was like, I was on that path for a little bit and very much saw myself as like on that path. So yeah, that's all. Like, yeah, I didn't know if it like, I don't know that other, that the, the male species, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is not like I didn't idealize it. Like I would not have. I didn't idealize like the idea. I think this more and more. I'm glad that my parents don't listen to this podcast. Uh, I think more and more every time I visit their house, like they've updated a bunch of stuff. But like I like and I, I love going to visit them and all that kind of stuff. And I have nothing but like fun memories from high school in that house. But it's fucking small. And it's like the amount of stuff that I would want to do to that house now to make it sort of like livable for me is, is quite a bit. And so it does not, it it is not that idea of like keeping everything the same, uh, was not ever anything that I sort of saw as desirable for, for myself. That's all. But like, but the idea of being like the basic structure, like, heterosexual marriage with somebody that you, you know, meet pretty early in your life, uh, raising a family in and around your hometown, still connected to a lot of friends that you grew up with and, uh, family that you have in the area. Like, yeah, that was like, I wasn't like, please God, I hope this happens. But I was just like, (laughs) I was just basically like, this is what happens. It was sort of like stronger than please God, I hope this happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. I think sometimes, I still feel that pressure. I clearly am not following that path. Um, but like my parents' house, um, you know, it was, it's a centennial farm. So it's been in the family for 
gosh, it became a centennial farm in 94. So almost 120 years old. Um, and my dad has made it, I mean, just beautiful. And it's, it's a, it's an old farmhouse and just, it's, it's spacious, I guess. I don't know. It's an old farmhouse. Um, but I always feel like there is this undercurrent, like that nobody wants to talk about is like, who's, who's going to take the like, who's going to get the house? Like, and who's going to continue this on this like legacy, um, on. And I feel like for a long time, like us four kids, it was like, which one, which one of you is going to do it? Like, but no, no one ever actually asked us that. <laughs> like, um, we didn't like make an agreement of like, okay, like someday Rachel's going to come back and this is going to be her responsibility. Like we've never talked about that, but now that they have grandkids, you know, the, the, well, and we were three girls and a boy. And so when it was three girls, it was just like, well, this is, this is the norm, right? Like, how could how could these girls take over yeah, the right, farm? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. There is no way they could operate a tractor. Like, yeah. um, but then I was the third girl, so my dad was like, "Well, that's, if all I have is girls, one of them's got to operate a tractor, so it's going to be Rachel." <laughs> well, this is- so I learned how to drive tractor and whatever. And so there was, I think, this like sense of Rachel's going to stay and she's going to take over and she's do these things, and then I'm, you know not any of that but now they have grandkids who are all boys mm. <laughs> and like jameson my nephew is the new legacy yeah. <laughs> coming up learning how to drive tractor at, at you know six years old and what he loves animals he loves being on the farm him and my dad are like besties and mm-hmm. um so it just it's just interesting to me that um, is really how we, have these like expectations for people to carry on <laughs> these traditions. Well, would you like to hear something painfully nerdy? Yes. So one of the very first books that I ever indexed for a university press was by this legal historian who turns out to be quite famous and has like given me because he keeps recommending his stellar grad students to me or me to his stellar grad students. I keep getting this fucking amazing legal scholarship uh, coming across my desk. His name is Dirk Hartog. I think he's at Madison, or he was. He's emeritus, if not fully retired now. Anyway, he, like, his specialty is in property law, particularly in, like, rural inheritance law. And so, like, the first book that I did for him was about the problem of who inherits the farm uh, and how that works. And he's, like, in, like, especially in the way that, like, the way— the way that changing social pressures of urbanization changed these arrangements and forced like the the construction of actual like legal whatever innovations in order to accommodate all these kinds of things he's like what i learned is that it used to, it traditionally is the case that the youngest child everybody else leaves to make their own way and the youngest child takes over the farm that is the parents retirement plan it is just like they will stay in that house until they expire and the youngest child basically assumes the responsibility of providing elder care for them until that time and then takes and like it's not explicitly as compensation but like also takes up the duty of continuing on like the legacy of that farm and so like as more and more farmers kids i mean this creates a way for like every other farmer's child in that family to like move to the city or whatever and start careers of their own and sort of like separate themselves to the farmer's life. But as like more and more as like the younger kids, I mean, his whole thing 
Hartog's whole thing was about like the King Lear problem that this creates is what he mm. like. How do you decide when the right time to retire is like it, anyway, anyway, that's the, that's the nerdy kind of thing. So like hearing it play out in your family is fascinating. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. And I think there's just like such this pressure in that particularly on farms, but anywhere, like any, any house, right. That people yeah. have lived in for a long time. And it's like, they put their whole life into this and this like, and and if and not if when they expire, there's this sense of guilt, right? That yeah. they worked so hard to do all of this to to just have a house or to have a farm or whatever. Like, there's no way you could possibly sell it. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Um, you just get that sense. So, and and I think that's what you get with Chrissy too, right? Sure. It's like she had to carry on the the legacy of the treehouse. Like there was no way, and she even says that, right? Like there's no way I would have got rid of it. Yeah, which like that that part is strange. So like the the movies, the movie is like straight up social reproduction is the only way of inheriting the past that there is, and that's fucked up. I I think like mm-hmm. yeah, it looks almost pathological the way that Chrissy is like when Chrissy says like like mother like daughter, it sounds like a like. It sounds like a crazy person <laughs> talking. Oh, I think she she entirely <laughs> sounds like a crazy person. <laughs> so like that's odd. so you know I, I I think in offline communication we have I I've told you that like Chelsea's family lives on what I describe lovingly as the compound which oh, is yes. like <laughs> So like Chelsea's I think grandparents great grandparents were you know immigrant farmers in Wisconsin they had this like they had this big farm. Uh Two generations ago, uh, somebody like became like the like the funeral director and the mortician or whatever, and then that business was the family business and whatever. Either way, there was this farm that eventually nobody wanted to run. So they just they parceled it off, kept all the parcels in the family, but now it's effectively like Chelsea's dad and her two brothers own two of the three of these parcels, the rest of the family also like some of the land is owned and rented out to other people who are growing stuff on it and that kind of stuff. But it's still, it's owned by people in the family. Mm-hmm. Land is still in the family. Various members have built houses on it. There's a ski hill on it that like the, the family runs. It's great. Like it's, <laughs> that's amazing. It is amazing. Um, And like that continues to be like the gathering place at like thanksgiving and christmas there's always a house there's like they have like a little like a ski cabin at the base of this sort of ski hill which is just apparently like talking to some of chelsea's cousins who are all like we're all in our 40s now and like i was like this cabin is sweet like the high school parties here must have been amazing there's this big roaring fireplace there there's a couple of levels there's like pizza ovens and like seamus her uh her her cousin is basically like would have been a whole lot like it was sweet it's impossible to do that now with like since like Chelsea's family built all these houses up <laughs> up here now, like people can watch you like down to the yeah. way, like supervisor. Yeah. Anyway, that's like it. It's an odd thinking about the, the way that like rural prop- property is passed down and how people sort of carry on legacies. It's, it's this weird sort of like now there's like these big houses that are very comfortable. People have like professional jobs that like they work outside the home and all this kind of stuff. But the land is still in the family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Final thoughts on this movie? Final thoughts. Oh, gosh. Um, I thought, you know, I, I remember I thought 
Jerry Maguire held up, and then we got like three minutes in the conversation. <laughs> like, did it? Did it hold up? Yeah. I don't think it did. Uh-huh. Um, but this one, I think, I think held up. Like, I think, mm-hmm. I think there's parts of it that, even though there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sexism in oh, it, yeah. and a lot of um, sort of like social norms that are portrayed. But I think if I if I had a girl or a boy as a daughter, like I would, or a son <laughs> or whatever, um, I would have them rewatch this as a conversation. I think it just, I think it, it brings up, it's, it's a good conversation starter about a lot of just like larger societal issues that are, we're still dealing with. Like I was even thinking about before I hopped on today is Pat Summit's birthday. And so here uh, I, yeah. at UT, uh-huh. You know, it's it's a big day right. um, because of who Pat Summit was and the giant that she was. And there's a really great article I can send it to you. I think you'd like it um, about the role that Pat Summit played in this this girl's life as um, a, a young woman in Eastern Tennessee. And um, I think thinking about these norms that we've had about feminism and just women, both both of those mm-hmm. things. Um, like this, this movie is something that I think can continue to inform that conversation sure. um, on how we can continue to do better and stop have like I don't know. Yeah, I'll leave it there. Uh, very interesting. Like I like again, having not seen this before, it strikes me as a piece of popular culture that is very much of its time. I really enjoyed all of the you know not universal experiences, but like the depictions of the various sorts of struggles that one has growing up mm-hmm. and like sort of growing into uh, a body in general uh, yeah. uh, in like a gendered world as gendered people. Uh, so that part, that part all held up. I like, I, I was continually distracted on my own watch just by recognizing that, that this piece of, filmmaking is just such an artifact of the time in which it was made as well and, and sort of and simultaneously like being horrified at that and also really reveling yeah. in it so that, that that's that is i think where it can leave it the limitations of its sort of imagination mm-hmm. of what people's like life trajectories might be are very visible now in a way that they probably weren't in 1995 mm-hmm. but so are like the the little sweetnesses and you know thanks to Chrissy, we will always have the metaphor of the garden and its hose. <laughs> yes, what a contribution to society. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. As always, subscribe wherever you're listening and if you've got time, please do leave us a rating and a review. Our next episode on Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown is coming out in early July, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, for all of us here at Point 10, I'm Derek Gottlieb. We will see you next time.